Good afternoon. I want to thank you for having me here today and the opportunity to present with um, these panelists here. This is coming from my dissertation research that looks at the challenges to combating human trafficking, specifically by looking at um, U.S. NGOs' response to the problem and what problems they, the challenges they perceive. My um, data comes from in-depth interviews with 59 NGO representatives located in eight locations across the United States and 11 government representatives. And when approaching these NGOs and doing these interviews, I was very interested in their perspective, again, what are the challenges to effectively combating, combating human trafficking within the United States? And NGOs offer variations in what these challenges are, but two main themes that appear throughout the interviews is that there is a lack of awareness and shared understanding of what actually constitutes human trafficking, what the definition of human trafficking is, and also that there's attitudes that bias individuals from identifying or helping victims of human trafficking. And um, with these challenges for this presentation, I'm going to focus on these challenges within among the public and law enforcement. Now, first, it's important to know that, that it is very important to identifying victims for various reasons. One, victims are very knowledgeable. They have a wealth of knowledge that NGOs report that they can shed light on the process by which people are trafficked, the context or the situation that make people vulnerable to human trafficking. They're also very compelling advocates. NGOs report experiences with victims who very much want to be involved in helping other victims and um, do in those efforts to make things better for other victims. And that also identifying victims is essential in establishing that a crime has occurred, which is necessary in order to, how are we going to combat this if we don't know exactly what the crime is, where the crime is happening. So NGOs report, and government reports as well, that um, that human trafficking victims are absolutely essential in building cases against human traffic, traffickers and prosecuting them. This is also important for foreign national victims in which their cooperation with law enforcement is necessary in most cases in order for them to access the benefits and services entitled to them under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. So they, in most cases, they'll need to cooperate with law enforcement to access those services and benefits. However, as uh, previously noted, there's obstacles to victims self-identifying, to use again the lingo of um, NGOs, that Victims are tightly controlled, that there's, they may experience threats from traffickers that might keep them from coming forward. They have a fear of repercussion of law enforcement, of government generally. And they may not even know that they are victims according to U.S. law. So it's very important for the public to understand what human trafficking is because they're central in actually identifying victims. NGOs report multiple cases in which Good Samaritans bring attention to trafficking cases to NGOs and law enforcement. These could be neighbors, cab drivers, post office, um, your postman that walk around and drop off your mail, other strangers that have identified that a trafficking case has happened and brought that to law enforcement and other NGOs. However, the public is hindered in actually bringing the, identifying these cases just because of a lack of awareness and shared understanding of what actually is human trafficking. Now, NGOs report there's been a change since 2006 when I first started doing this research to now in 2009, where now NGOs seem to report that there tends to be more awareness that sex trafficking exists. 
However, they still say that there's maybe a much more lack of awareness that labor trafficking exists within the United States and more attention needs to um, be brought to that to the public. But there's also a problem of victims being stigmatized by members of the public, which poses a challenge to victims being um, identified and helped. Here's an example brought up by one NGO who um, worked with a community in which there were high rates of human trafficking, and her goal was to go into the community, raise their awareness, and get them involved in actually identifying cases. And as it says here, she said in their response, when she came to them was the last thing they, the community, want to do is rock the boat to help out people who maybe are not from their community, who are here illegally, and who in a lot of people's minds are stupid for getting themselves in the situation in the first place. So these sorts of attitudes can challenge the public's ability to identify and um, therefore help human trafficking victims. There's another example from an NGO who's talking about um, victims who are actually of the same ethnic group of the community in which they were being trafficked to. She says, you would be surprised how the communities the victims actually come from, that their own communities see them as a shameful thing. The communities have been kind of resistant to welcoming these people. It's too political. They don't want to get involved. So that's kind of a sad aspect of it, I think. It's almost like the victims have no home really to return to. So again, the public stigma of victims is a major challenge to identifying and helping victims. Another common theme are the challenges um, for law enforcement to actually identifying and helping victims. I should say that NGOs have mixed experiences with law enforcement. So NGOs across the United States that I've talked to in different locations, some report very excellent relationships with law enforcement, which they say law enforcement is very knowledgeable and very committed and dedicated to pursuing trafficking cases. However, this is uneven and not found across um, the United States. Law, again, I want to remind you that law enforcement support of a victim is very important for the victim to access service. That what victims often need is a law enforcement endorsement in writing that law enforcement says, I believe this person's a human trafficking victim and that they're going to help me in prosecuting this case, which is what's necessary for the victim to actually access these services. So one of the barriers to getting law enforcement support is that there's variation in law enforcement's awareness, training, strategies, and objectives. An example of this from one NGO was that one thing I'll say is everyone in law enforcement was very interested in the trafficking issue, but I also feel like they really suffered from a lack of funding and support and general understanding about what we're going to do about it, what their agencies really wanted them to do, how far they wanted them to push. So without these clear objectives, clear strategies, law enforcement may struggle to actually identifying victims and helping victims. There is also a problem, though, of attitudes among certain law enforcement that may hinder them from identifying and helping victims. And two common themes about these attitudes center on prostitution and immigration. Given law enforcement's perceptions on prostitutes, this may pose a major challenge. This quote actually comes from someone in law enforcement who said that it really takes a shifting your perception of looking at a prostitute as a criminal to having to look at them as maybe possibly a victim. And he said, for me, it took having to change my whole way of looking at things. They look like prostitutes, talk like prostitutes. But after I learned about sex trafficking, I think you really do have to look beneath the surface. And I think law enforcement might miss a lot of cases because they just don't know what to look for. And so here another challenge, by automatically looking at people as criminals, this could hinder our ability to actually identifying them and helping them as victims. This might be a changing perception. I've noticed over time that um, NGOs seem to be reporting that there seems to be more awareness among law enforcement about sex trafficking. This NGO said, law enforcement 
if this was in the past, in regards to the past, law enforcement would do a bust of the massage parlors. They would find women there. They would arrest them for prostitution, and that would be the end of it. But now with education, they know that they could be possible victims of human trafficking. So the victims may not be charged immediately with prostitution. Maybe law enforcement will give us an opportunity to talk to them. There's always that level of, you know, these people are still doing something bad, of course, but the treatment has gotten better. And so this reflects that with more NGO involvement and advocacy and even among law enforcement, that this could be having a positive effect on law enforcement and enabling them to identify and help victims. Another major problem is law enforcement's attitudes about immigration. One main thing here is a concern about immigration enforcement. The following quote comes from an NGO who actually provides training to law enforcement about anti-trafficking laws in the United States, and the following is her response that she gets from law enforcement when she does these trainings. She said, there's a lot of, I'm not going to sign off on anything or do anything that gives these people immigration status. I'm not going to do immigration stuff. That's not my job. And so there's a, not a clear understanding of exactly what their job is or what the laws are or what they're supposed to do to actually help in these cases. For them, just that this might possibly be an immigration issue, particularly among state and local law enforcement, might hinder them from actually pursuing cases or giving their support to trafficking victims. There's also a concern among some law enforcement that victims might actually be deceptive, um, that they aren't actually trafficking victims, but rather they'll do whatever they can to stay in, to, in the United States. And this is from one NGO who is um, reflecting on experiences he's had with federal law enforcement, particularly um, the FBI and ICE. He said, they, law enforcement, just don't believe the victim. They think anybody will say anything to get to stay in America, and we've got to get them out of here. So these sorts of attitudes, when you look at a victim right up front as possibly being a criminal or trying to do something deceptive, this can be a major challenge to actually identifying and helping victims. So in conclusion from NGOs, from um, their experiences and their knowledge, in order to effectively combat human trafficking, we must address this lack of awareness and shared understanding of what constitutes human trafficking, as well as attitudes that may keep people from identifying and helping victims of human trafficking. Now, it's very difficult to how do we address these attitudes and these perceptions among the public and among law enforcement, but um, NGOs offer some suggestions at how we might be able to come to this. One thing they are, many NGOs argue is that there needs to be more attention on labor trafficking, and there, this could be um, done through the media, complement the last presentation, that the media can play a role in maybe presenting actually responsible presentations of what labor trafficking is and raising awareness of this. Does it seem to maybe have an impact in terms of sex trafficking? They also argue that we need to standardize training of law enforcement at all levels. And this was also a suggestion by the Department of Justice that all levels of law enforcement need to be trained on what the laws are and how to respond to these cases when they come in contact with them. But right now we know with our, um, the economic issues that are going on, this might be difficult to implement. With a lack of resources, how do we actually standardize the training of law enforcement at all levels? NGOs also argue that we need committed and knowledgeable law enforcement on city, state, and anti-human trafficking task forces. One thing that NGOs note that even if law enforcement may not be dedicated, they could find maybe one law enforcement that um, official that was very dedicated, was very committed. However, with high turnover, those individuals may be transferred to other units, and therefore then the NGOs are left with nobody to talk to in law enforcement when these cases arise, nobody to work with. 
Um, some NGOs suggest that we possibly have law enforcement divisions that only work on human trafficking. So this would be their sole focus and their sole objective. And NGOs also note that these law enforcement connect as mediators between law enforcement agencies as well as between law enforcement and NGOs, but that we need committed, dedicated officials in these positions. Thank you.
I was told that I would have 15 minutes to talk about human trafficking, and um, with such a complex, emotionally loaded topic, that was really difficult to kind of um, nail it down to some point I wanted to discuss. Um, my two main objectives for this short presentation will be to present to you um, some of what is, in my mind, the most groundbreaking empirical research on the health effects of trafficking. Um, there's a lot of qualitative work that's done, a lot of investigative journalism pointing out um, all the negative effects of trafficking. You hear about sex slaves and rape and torture and re-trafficking and HIV, and these things do exist. Um, but I'd like to focus just on what we know from some empirical research. Um, it's, um, it's pretty difficult to talk about um, decisively the scope and the extent of trafficking. You hear numbers as high as 27 million. Um, that's from Kevin Bales. And then you hear um, from different uh, state departments, a couple hundred thousand. And no one really knows, which is very scary. But um, I'd like to focus as much as I can on what we know from um, empirical work. Um, as far as emphasizing the vital citizen activism and fighting human trafficking, um, I'm going to go over a couple of studies looking at what Americans um, know, what we don't know specifically, and then one example of what happened in Toledo, um, where some researchers were able to put together a community project that raised awareness um, on a broad scale. Um, two caveats, um, just to keep in mind while I'm speaking, um, a full and detailed discussion of trafficking it really is not possible um, with this brief presentation, so I have to make um, two simplifications. Um, and the first one being that um, there's always been an emphasis, for the most part, on um, the media and the scholars on international trafficking, um, to, to neglect of um, domestic trafficking. And there also has not been too much of a focus on labor trafficking as opposed to trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Um, I think that my presentation and my own research interests are largely the artifact of this, um, and because I understand trafficking um, within the broader human rights agenda of combating violence against women as well. Um, so just a lesser focus on trafficking for labor or other forms of exploitation does not mean that's less significant of a problem, but we do certainly know less about it. Um, there's also a lack of consensus and agreed upon numbers concerning the scope and nature of trafficking. Um, this criticism is coming not from just outside the trafficking community, but within it. So um, just, just my disclaimer would be, um, please understand that although there's so much we still don't know about this, um, it's an emerging field of study and scholarly analysis. Um, I hope that you can all give me the benefit of the doubt that it does exist. It's a huge problem and it's worthy of our attention. So looking at the effects of trafficking. Um, this is adapted from Zimmerman and Watts. These are um, public health researchers out of the UK. And because we don't really have studies looking at, okay, what exactly are the long-term health consequences of trafficking, um, we can kind of take um, all these different areas of literature, um, exploring the psychological and medical sequelae in women within other exploited or marginalized populations, and kind of aggregate them, aggregate them to present a rough estimate of health consequences of trafficking. So this would involve looking at the literature on health outcomes of migrant women, of exploited women laborers, sex workers, and women who have suffered rape, torture, or interpersonal violence. Um, I don't really have the time to address all of these spheres of um, marginalization or vulnerability, but I'd just like to point out one study done on prostitution. Um, I thought this was a seminal study done by Farley and colleagues in 2004. Um, they interviewed almost 1,000 people from nine different countries who are currently or recently in prostitution. Um, just a few of the stats from that. 
um, out of these almost 1,000 people, 71% were physically assaulted in prostitution, 63% had been raped, 89% of the respondents wanted to escape prostitution but felt they couldn't because they had no other options for survival, a total of 75% had been homeless at some point, um, Post-traumatic stress disorder is something that's been studied a lot recently. You hear about it in combat veteran populations. Out of this almost 1,000 people, um, 68% met criteria for PTSD, which is higher than combat veteran populations, and 63% were sexually abused as children. So talking about the, um, the issue of choice, food for thought. Um, so when you combine this knowledge with um, the added effects of being a migrant, being a woman, being a minority, coming from a situation of poverty, being abused, not even knowing the language, the language of the country you're in, um, we can anticipate that the health effects of trafficking are pretty devastating. Um, I want to talk about two studies in particular. Um, this first one, um, Zimmerman and colleagues, was done in 2008, um, and it's the first study to quantitatively document the health effects of uh, trafficking in women and adolescent girls. And um, it seems like some of the best scholarship in trafficking is actually coming from the same family because um, Dr. Shamova's sister was involved in uh, the Bulgarian research site of this study as well. Um, so they, they surveyed about 200 European women who had been trafficked and sexually exploited. They found that 95% of the sample reported physical or sexual violence while trafficked. Um, looking at the mental health effects specifically, 39% were seriously considering suicide at the time that they were surveyed, and 57% qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. Um, as far as physical health effects, they were pretty severe as well. Um, the majority of women were having very bad headaches, back pain, memory problems, gynecological infection, um, and the importance that this study shows, in my mind, is not only that we do have some actual data on how bad the effects of trafficking are, but um, women in this condition were not ready to be testifying against their traffickers um, or their well, the, the Johns, men who had um, used them for sexual services. And um, there is a movement um, to grant visas to trafficked people, um, but in the U.S.'s case, and we can probably talk about this a little bit later too, um, women are usually expected to testify against the traffickers. So that's kind of a difficulty. Um, the second study, um, Sumi and colleagues, um, that was done in 2008 as well, um, looking at the health effects of trafficking in women trafficked from Nepal. And um, they were divided into two groups, women who had been trafficked for forced prostitution and those who worked in domestic and circus work. Um, both groups had very high uh, rates of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But compared to the non-sex worker group, the sex worker group had more severe symptoms. 100% of them qualified for a diagnosis of clinical depression, a third qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD, and approximately one-third were infected with HIV. So um, the HIV rate those actually have been um, supported by other studies done by Silverman and colleagues um, in Nepal as well, and they found that in samples, um, approximately one-fourth to one-third have HIV. So please just keep in mind during this that um, the women involved in these studies represent the absolute smallest minority of trafficked women. Um, those who escaped their situation actually survived, sought assistance, and um, were included in the study. That's the smallest, smallest majority. So we know that it's a problem. We know that there are some very severe health effects of trafficking. 
what can we do about it? Um, pretty much every study that's ever been published on trafficking says there's so much more to know about this, we know almost nothing about it, and they call for increased awareness about the problem. Um, Lusk and Lucas pointed out that public awareness is probably the preve fundamental preventative strategy, considering that um, most people don't know that the products they're buying have slave labor in If you're you know, buying tomatoes at Giant Eagle or whatever, you don't really think, well, was the person who picked these tomatoes paid a fair wage? <coughs> or if you're getting a shirt that says, oh, made in China, okay, it was made in China, but by whom? We don't really ask those questions. Um, people who go to prostitutes or watch pornography or go to strip clubs, um, I don't have empirical evidence for this, but I'm willing to bet that most of them don't really think, okay, was, was this person trafficked? Um, were they abused as a child? What are the reasons they're working in this industry? If they're working or if they're forced. Um, another study done by um, Wilson and Dalton looked at responses to trafficking in the Ohio cities of Columbus and Toledo. Um, there actually is a special FBI task force in Toledo. Um, it's been identified as one of the number one recruitment sites in the United States for underage <coughs> prostitutes and young girls who are being trafficked. And um, the authors pointed out a lot of problems with um, how the issue was being dealt with um, and a lot of factors that were impeding investigations and prosecutions, including lack of awareness and training, inadequate resources, and faulty policies. But they did say that some cases had been identified when community members realized there was something wrong and reached out in some way, such as by helping a victim or calling the police. Um, a study that gives me hope is um, one done by Williamson and Baker. Um, this is in Toledo as well. It's a great example of what a community can do when people work together to fight human, human rights violations such as trafficking. Um, in Toledo, like I mentioned before, human trafficking is a big problem as well as prostitution. And um, a group got together to um, discuss prostitution, what they could do to fight it, what they could do to stop trafficking in the area. This group involved concerned citizens, church groups, academics, former sex workers, survivors of trafficking, social workers and therapists, the um, political community, the justice community, um, members of community boards, just a whole bunch of people getting together, meeting every month, some of them even weekly, to talk about how big the problem was and what they could do about it. Um, Eventually, um, they actually did some studies showing that people's knowledge of trafficking increased. And after a year was over, um, they had conducted public access TV programs on trafficking, a national conference which attracted scholars from all over the country, um, a sold-out play on trafficking. They established a 24-hour crisis hotline, secured funding for a residential treatment program, and secured an FBI task force in Toledo to help with the prosecution of traffickers and pimps. This is done all by volunteers, and they had no funding. So I think that really gives you hope that things can improve and get better when people get together and start working, um, and really highlights the importance of civil society and fighting trafficking. Um, so my advice would be to think global but act local. There are um, many Ohio organizations involved in fighting tra trafficking, some of them in Columbus. And um, just to talk about my own research, um, it's an ongoing project, so I can't speak about it too much. But um, to date, there's never been an experimental study on attitudes and empathy towards trafficked persons. And we don't really have a good idea of um, what people actually know about trafficking either. Um, my study is going to be two-pronged. First, um, a measure that my colleagues and myself created to measure uh, Americans' knowledge of human trafficking. And then an experimental section, um, we're going to be having different vignettes, stories set up 
where um, they are going to be varying um, whether the woman involved in sex work is someone who is an American citizen or foreign, and whether or not she's working voluntarily or involuntarily in sex work. And then kind of seeing the response people have, how much empathy they feel towards the woman in the situation, how much they feel she deserves government support, and seeing how it varies based on her immigration status and whether or not she's voluntarily working in the sex industry. Um, I'd just like to close with a, a quote by Martin Luther King. Um, Our lives begin to end the day that we become silenced about things that matter, and I hope that we can all take that to heart. Thank you very much. questions, and I'm not going to delay any longer getting to the audience, so uh, I'll leave the floor open now for any of you that want to ask questions, and we'll direct it to any or all of the panelists. Sure, if I can. Ambassador, I was wondering if during your time at the State Department, you could talk about some of the overseas issues we've had with slavery, like such as Sudan or something like that, and what the United States is doing to combat it. Well, the um, approach of the United States um, government internationally is to engage in an assessment of other countries, um, kind of a form of tough love. Congress has asked for an international report uh, to be made of every country in the world, and it's kind of a unique one among the human rights reports in that it gives grades to other countries. It's really decided, not, you know, designed not to wave a finger at other countries, but in, indeed to elicit cooperation. Uh, the, the U.S. government also offers aid in particular to NGOs and to U.N. agencies around the world so that in places where there is a will to change and improve and uh, lacking economic resources, um, you can make a difference. Um, some particular places where the United States um, has focused in recent years um, have included um, the Persian Gulf where there's a, it, it's a real... Um, focus of um, a problem with guest workers, but it's not a place where the United States has a great deal of leverage. It does not, and that's interesting because those are governments that uh, are sometimes blithely treated uh, in, in uh, among um, Persian Gulf states as U.S. strategic allies, um, but there's no, we, we don't offer aid, um, their economic resources are substantial. Um, sensitivity to um, the victimization of women and to foreign nationals um, as migrant workers is limited. Um, in East Asia, there's a, a good focus on in U.S. policy on both sex trafficking and on labor trafficking. Um, a big focus on India, but uh, a difficulty in that di- a diplomatic dialogue and getting India um, to want to talk about bonded labor. Um, and there is a neglect, I would say, in U.S. policy um, uh, in, in uh, focusing on, on Africa. I think there's an increased uh, intensity of diplomatic dialogue, but just not enough foreign assistance to help uh, meet the capacity gap there, since you mentioned Sudan. So we mostly do assessment rather than actually combat, fight. No, that's not, uh, that's not accurate. I think the assessment is generally used as a... a, a uh, a prelude to intensive diplomacy to encourage countries to change. And then we try and put, I say we, the U.S. tries to put forward, um, you know, some economic assistance so that we put some money where our mouth is. Um, so combating is indeed, um, you know, very important. But I think more resources need to be applied. Actually, I have a question. Um, I'm not sure if you're 
Actually, when you ask your question, if you could please speak up so that we can get it on the recording as well. And we, we've been assured that the actual audio recording is coming out perfectly. So please, if you're missing something right now, don't worry. You can still get it online at the Marshawn Center site uh, within a week or so. So but if you could just please speak up when you're asking your questions. Yes, stand for you. Out of the 14,500 to 17,500 trafficked into the U.S. per year, um, and out of all of the people currently in sex trafficking that aren't trafficked in but are in the United States, how many are coming out of human trafficking? Is that through self-identification or is that through some kind of rescue operation? And what do you suggest to nonprofits that are looking to increase that number? Right. Um, All too few are being identified. Um, And one thing I hope is that the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, the national hotline that Claire's project is uh, operating for the Department of Health and Human Services, helps. Because um, uh, there are rather few people who are are getting the so-called T visa, the visa for human trafficking victims from abroad. Um, There aren't many people, about 300 a year, among foreign nationals who are getting certification um, as human trafficking victims. Um, and so there, there needs to be, you know, exactly the partnership between law enforcement and NGOs that I was talking about in my remarks. I, I think that the more that authorities see NGOs as assets um, who can do something that they cannot, um, the better off we'll be. Um, And I think that NGOs, while they should be tough critics of law enforcement that aren't sufficiently trained or sensitive, um, they should angle to be um, partners, tough partners, but partners of of law enforcement so you can find more victims. Anyone else want to go back to the audience? We'll go back. More questions? Yes. Is it known um, which U.S. cities are the like destination hubs of international trafficking where they're coming to? Okay, where are they? I mean, they're entry points, uh, clearly. Uh, California, Texas, Florida, um, from Canada, uh, over the border. Um, But, you know, know, people come uh, various ways. The question is where they, they end up, you know, the... My successor as Ambassador to Command Human Trafficking, Luis DeBaca, is engaged in a number of prosecutions. Uh, and as a prosecutor, you know, he was involved in trying to um, bring justice for children who were trafficked from Mexico to um, be panhandlers or what are called more, uh, you know, around the world beggars. Um, well, okay, so their entry point was someplace else besides New York, but that, that was, you know, uh, where they ended up. Um, I think I can comment a little bit on that. Um, Generally, the movement is considered to be from poor countries to the richer countries and then from rural to urban areas. Um, In the U.S., the cities that have been identified have been the ones that everyone always thinks of, like, you know, the L.A., Chicago, New York, Dallas, um, on the coast, and then in Ohio, um, Toledo has been a a major area of attention. Yes, sir. Yeah, I wondered if um, anyone on the panel was aware of any kind of research that's done on looking at how various aspects in the arts are addressing it. I mean, obviously, um, Yana, you were looking at films. Um, And I I was just thinking, 
there are a lot of plays. I, I mean, recently there's been a lot of theater mm -hmm. work, obviously mm -hmm. films, things mm -hmm. like The Wire had a mm -hmm. whole section on it. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it was a year ago, Emma, I think it's Emma Thompson, the British actress. This is her big one of. Am I right? It's mm -hmm. her big. Yes. Yep. This is her big yeah. cause, so mm -hmm. to speak. And she arranged with the mayor of London to have Trafalgar Square. Um, have a container, um, a lorry container that had, I don't know if it was the literal one that had carried, you know, was trafficking people inside of it, but it was set up as a kind of an mm. art installation, and you could go inside of it and see what it would be like. It was kind of... I saw it at, at a, uh, uh, there was a, a major UN conference in Vienna okay. on human trafficking, and mm -hmm. Uh, that was um, it was striking as a set of uh, containers right, and yeah. it showed the stages mm -hmm. of the life of the recruitment uh, and trafficking and the sexual exploitation um, of uh, you know a, a real live victim and it's quite moving and it came to New York um, this past September hmm. this NGO in Bulgaria Animus has also tried to organize some simple skits with uh, at orphanages they uh, study and, and target groups of risk, and usually these are lower uh, social and uh, school districts and orphanages, and there they have tried to organize some skits of the way there is this new phenomenon now, the lover boy, who goes to really seduce a girl, and they date for a few weeks or a few months, and then um, he actually pimps her abroad. Uh, and they have tried to create a simple skit where one plays a lover boy and so really to introduce them to one of the common um, recruiting channels. Yes. Well, most of my remarks were giving examples of them in the United States and, and other advanced industrial countries and developing countries. Um, in, in the U.S., some of the major ones, um, Free the Slaves, headed by Kevin Bales, who um, was cited earlier, um, CAST, Coalition of Slavery and Trafficking, uh, based in Los Angeles, focused on really victim services and quite interested in labor trafficking, Polaris Project uh, as one. Um, uh, but there are a number of other ones, and a really interesting place, I would say, uh, you know, for looking at NGO work is India, where there are organizations that are devoted to, to sort of re-empowerment of the victim after uh, they've been identified. And I, I think that's a, a, a very interesting field of work. Um, for instance, an organization in India called Apni App, which refers to on your own initiative in Hindi, where... Um, women who were sex trafficking victims um, have been kind of re-empowered by going out and trying to help other women um, get out of that situation. Um, also, I would add, if you're interested, there's a website, www.humantrafficking.org. I think they received a grant from the State Department to set up a website to share information with NGOs. And you can look up in particular states, look up a state in the United States, and it'll have a list of NGOs that are working on the problem and their contact information. The most effective one in Eastern Europe is La Strada Network, which has uh, NGOs in Poland, the Czech Republic, Mon Moldova, Ukraine, Bulgaria, Macedonia, and this 
Istanbul organization that I worked with it is also a partner of La Strada it's not exactly a branch but it's a partner and La Strada network is the most effective one working in Eastern Europe um, I was going to mention La Strada too and I think the um, pretty incredible thing about them as well they offer mental health services which a lot of these NGOs um, don't have the, the, force, the, um, the funding for and um, in Ohio, um, in Columbus there's a Central Ohio Rescue and Restore Coalition they meet um, every think Wednesday, like the third Wednesday of the month in Columbus, um, and there's other ones as well. And we'll have time for, I guess, one or two more, but go ahead. Yes. Um, my question is uh, for both international trafficking and domestic trafficking. Um, what does the trafficking structure look like? For example, are there a bunch of entrepreneurs that do this? <laughs> is there, are there a few groups that control what's happening? Um, and do Let me take a crack at that, and some of you may want to add add to that. I mean, you know, uh, put in simple terms, some of it is really big organized crime, and some is the evil version of mom and pop operations, uh, smaller uh, organizations. In some places, like Japan, like Mexico, big, dangerous organized crime uh, networks. Um, in some other places, um, smaller. Uh, specializing in, in certain areas, there's a certain opportunistic quality to this. Um, I think some of the earlier remarks indicated you know, there's, there's a sadism, there's a devaluing of human beings, but just as um, you were saying about films, there's also a banality of evil where there is, you know, there's rather low risk and there's profit to be had. And as compared to drug trafficking, this unfortunately is a reusable asset to exploit and exploit and exploit, whereas drugs just get used once. Um, and so there's a certain degree to where people jump at opportunities as opposed to sort of specializing in their niche field. We need to make it less profitable and more risky. Just a, a quick remark here. What's interesting is, for instance, in the Balkans with the former Yugoslavia, when there was an embargo, the U.S. embargo of arms and fuel and all that, and they developed an illegal smuggling operation, now they're using the same rings for trafficking, actually. They have exploited an already familiar criminal network to add more value to already established structure. Yeah, I would um, definitely agree with what they're saying, too. Um, it seems like, at least in the, the um, Russian or Russian-speaking organized crime that I'm more familiar with, um, as trafficking women became very lucrative, um, they were just able to kind of add that to their already established networks and trafficking of arms and drugs. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, this might be more direct towards Kristen than the others, but in terms of what we have in Columbus, you mentioned there were uh, four houses, uh, three, six, three houses. Yeah. Um, what, how are those funded right now? Mm -hmm. um, and how, like, and where do those need to be? Like, in five years, where do those need to have grown uh, so that prostitution is completely gone? <laughs> like, um. No, I mean, should there be 30 of those? Or mm -hmm. should those, like, like, you know, or would that mean too much competition between them? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> 
for starters, Gracehaven, um, it's not even up and running yet. They're still working on it, getting the house. And um, I think that they have purchased the house, but they haven't actually set it up and started helping people and bringing in survivors. Um, Rahab's Hideaway, I was actually at a fundraiser um, for them on Saturday. I see some familiar faces. And um, they are um, very active. Um, as far as ending prostitution. Do you know how Rahab's is funded? Do you know how it's funded? I think um, donations. Um, individual donations. Individual donations. And, um, no grants, yeah. And a lot of these get um, help from, like, Christian churches. Um, there's a lot of people in the religious community who are very active in these. Um, but as far as government funding, I'm not sure. I don't think that they do. Um, the Salvation Army, that does have ties with the government, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It's cooperated with it, but I don't know that it's been funded by it. I can't answer that one. I need to be disrespectful. Um, I'm a representative for the Central Ohio Rescue Store Coalition, and the I'm an employee of the Salvation Army, and we are the moderators, moderators uh, and managers of the coalition. But the coalition is actually a health and human services initiative from the U.S. government, but we have no funding. Um, and also, we you know have plenty of volunteer opportunities. I have information with me now, and I'll kind of linger a little bit if you guys want to get involved or have more questions about um, anti-tracking efforts in Columbus specifically. I can answer a lot of this. Thank you. Let's take one more, and then I think we should yes, in the green side. I would definitely agree that's a problem. And from NGOs that I've talked to with UN peacekeepers, that there's not necess- to be a UN peacekeeper. You don't necess- you don't have to you know show your dedication and commitment and prove how dedicated you are to ending this problem. So, unfortunately, in a lot of countries, um, trafficking might be seen as more normative. That the idea that somebody would be in debt bondage would be normal, or that somebody would be have to work without any sort of pay might seem normal. So we have to really address those attitudes among UN peacekeepers. And this has also been an issue within the United States among our um, our own military that have been engaged in trafficking while when they're abroad doing those sort of efforts. So I think it just, I don't know how we would get to that, but I think it raises a really important question that within these government agencies, within the UN, peacekeepers, the military, these are individuals, right? And they have individual attitudes about um, what they're doing, about prostitution, about trafficking. So how do we address those attitudes among them? How do we change their perspectives in order to prevent this from happening and make them more vigilant and actually going after trafficking when they come in contact? I think it's a very difficult um, thing to do, something that NGOs are working really hard at actually trying to, to do. But yeah, I, I want to compliment my colleague Kathleen Davis who's been very involved in uh, developing the training materials for the U.S. military on, on this very issue to raise awareness and their sensitivity to not be part of the problem. Right. 
And it's mandatory training for all personnel now. And the Vulcans, I guess. I don't like to cut this off, but we're almost 15 minutes yep. past than I was supposed to. <laughs> and uh, it's only fair that I, I do it when I still can sh thank the panelists and have most of you still here. I want to thank uh, Ambassador Langan and Yana Hashimova and Marguerite and Kristen for very interesting presentations and for agreeing to do this. The ambassador for coming out here today to both be downtown and then to extend a long day to join some spend some time with us. So mm -hmm. I really appreciate uh, your effort to be with us today. I want to thank in, in special terms of Cheryl King in my office at the Michon Center. We did an awful lot of the organizational work of this and Lance Erickson. We did also an awful lot at the Slavic Studies Center. So a big thank you for them. And I'd like to thank all the rest of you for coming, and I'm sure the panels will be here for a few minutes, and we have the person from the Salvation Army who said she'd linger. So thank you all for coming. <laughs> it's great to see you here. I hope you see you later.